Alright, I want you all to see that in honor of Father's Day, I wore my most comfortable vans. That was for me. But in honor of Father's Day, for my dad and my granddad, both of whom are deceased, my grandfathers, I tucked in. Father's Day is a very complicated holiday in, in my family. I love the way that some of the movie theaters are actually using Father's Day to promote the new Superman movie. In fact, if you go to Instagram, you can see a photo of me and my son holding Superman t-shirts uh, for in, in, in honor of Father's Day. Uh, I, I like it. I haven't seen the movie yet, by the way, so I, I'm not saying anything about the movie. But, but I like this idea of, of connecting up Superman with, with Father's Day because I think every kid should have their own personal Superman, right? They should have a super dad. It's a, it's a, it's a great idea. And, and I think that that idea is not something that Hollywood came up with. This, this idea of, of dad as a superhero is pretty much hardwired into us. We, as, as children, naturally look to our parents, and, and I think sons especially look to their dads, as, as role models, as, as superheroes. Now, of course, the, the sad thing about that is sooner or later, and sometimes it's sooner and hopefully it's later, that the kids realize dad's not a superhero. He's just a man. And yet even a bad dad wants his son or daughter to turn out better than he did, I think. Thus the rise of, of the phrase, so often heard on the lips of fathers maybe a generation or two ago, do as I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I do. You know, hoping against hope that for once, maybe in their kid's life, for once, actions will not speak louder than words. Of course, it's a vain hope. It never works out that way. So in reaction to that, that hypocritical, stereotypical father of a, of, a, of a few generations ago, I think a whole generation of dads has arisen in our, in our own culture that do not speak to their kids at all, except about the most trivial of things. Sports and, and movies and, and grades. Terrified at being a hypocrite dad, they, they, they do their best to, to model a life that their kids can admire and, and emulate, but, but they fail. In fact, they refuse, in fear of hypocrisy, they refuse to instruct their kids in the truths that undergird the very life that they're trying to model for their kids. And then their kids grow up and, and dad's scratching his head, wondering why their children didn't learn the lesson that they were meant to learn from, from the modeling, the silent modeling, the uninstructed modeling. Apparently words are necessary after all. This summer we're thinking about our life together not as nuclear families, but as a church family, as a spiritual family. And we're, we're using Paul's 
letter to Titus to do this. In our passage this morning, Paul has a lot to say about words and and about the effect words have inside of family, both for good and for ill. It turns out that whether in the nuclear family or, or in the church family, the spiritual family, what we say, as well as what we do, what we say really matters. Even though in the end, it is how we respond to words, what we do with those words that really counts. All right, so turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, verses 10 to 16. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are arguing, they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, you can tell I didn't plan the sermons around Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, dads. This passage is for you. In in verse 9, right before I started reading, Paul concludes his discussion of church leadership, of of elders, by, by noting that these elders needed to be able to encourage the church by teaching sound doctrine. And so now in our passage today, he tells us why. Why do they need to be able to do this? And first, it's because words can destroy. Words can destroy. And we see that in verses 10 to 12. Second, it's because words can rescue Words can rescue. We see that in verses 13 and 14. And and all of this is important, finally, because this is the third point. Words are not enough. Words are not enough. Verses 15 and 16. That's the outline. Help you organize your thoughts. You'll you'll find yourself helped, I think, if you keep your Bible open, because we're going to be referring to these passages, uh, these verses again and again. But but this this is the map of where we're going. Words can destroy, words can rescue, but in the end, words are not enough. All right, first, words can destroy. Look again there at verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars evil brutes, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. Well, right here is why it was urgent that Titus complete his mission 
of, of setting the churches in order, of, of seeing that, that leadership was, was put in place in all of these new churches across the island of Crete. Because already opponents of the gospel, false teachers, had arisen and had begun to do their, their damage in these churches. Now, we don't know much about the false teachers that, that Paul refers to here. He calls them rebellious, mere talkers, and deceivers. So, so at the very least, these are people, probably men, who have rejected the apostles' authority and have rejected the apostolic gospel. They are teaching something other than what the apostles taught. Now, there's no spiritual power to their teaching. So Paul calls them mere talkers. But, but this isn't just ignorance on their part. It, it's not just that they're mistaken or confused. He calls them deceivers. There's, there's a dedicated, a deliberate attempt on their part to deceive these young Christians into following a different gospel than the gospel that Paul and Titus had taught them. Now, he says that these mere talkers are of the circumcision group. You see that phrase there at the end of verse 10, of the circumcision group. What's he talking about there? Well, well, it's a phrase that comes up across the New Testament. And it's referring either to Jews or Christian converts from Judaism who were teaching that in order to be a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. And, and then keep the, the Jewish laws and, and all the purity rituals that were associated with Judaism. In verse 14, look down there. I haven't reread that again. But right there in verse 14, you see he refers to Jewish myths and human commandments. Again, this is something that we run across really all over the New Testament. And, and the teaching went something like this. As we kind of piece it together from the various letters in, in which Paul deals with this circumcision group. The teaching went something like this. Since Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, you have to become a Jew and remain a Jew in order to benefit from Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus plus Judaism equals salvation, according to this teaching. And then to to add insult to injury, they, they were actually peddling this false teaching for money. They were making their living off going around telling churches, okay, you heard the gospel from Paul, you know, that's, that's good, but he left something out. And, you know, if you'll pay us and, and if you'll support us, we'll, we'll fill you in on the rest of the story. That really got under Paul's skin. So much so that he actually quotes this pagan prophet against them. And even though that pagan prophet wasn't inspired in everything he said, apparently he was inspired in this because... Because Paul says, this testimony is true. Paul is hot. Now, here's where we see right here that words can destroy. Paul says that entire households are being ruined, literally overturned and, and destroyed because of this false teaching. Now, it might be that what he has in mind here is very specific practices, very specific teaching that these false teachers were giving out. We know that one of the things that they taught was, was uh, prohibiting marriage. And of course, if you go around to, to families and you start prohibiting marriage and telling people that are married, you shouldn't be married, you're going to do a lot of damage to families. But I, but I actually think that he doesn't have a specific teaching in mind. I, I think he's got the whole thing in mind. I think he's, he's referring to the fact 
that Jesus plus anything else does not equal salvation. Jesus plus anything else equals damnation. And therefore, if whole families are going with this teaching, incredible spiritual damage is being done. Words, you see, can destroy if they are false words that lead to false hope. Words can destroy if if they divert us from the help that we need to something else that, that cannot help us at all. I mean, we, we understand this in our own culture, right? You, you know, it's, it's against the law. It's not just that it's unethical. It's illegal to pretend that you're a doctor or a lawyer when you aren't one. And, and to begin to hand out medical advice or legal advice when, when you're not qualified to do that. Well, why do we take that so seriously? Why in our own culture do we make such a big deal of that? Well, well it's because that the advice that a doctor gives, a, a real doctor, can, can mean the difference between life and death. The, the advice that, that a real lawyer gives can, can mean the difference between freedom and imprisonment. So we don't want people going around giving advice that aren't qualified to give that kind of advice. The stakes are high. Well, it is the same, friends. It is the exact same with the gospel. All religions are not the same. All all truth claims are not equal. We didn't just make up Christianity. And and therefore, you know, we we can't just have people coming into churches, coming into Christian communities, and and offering what what they've made up as a, you know, as a a reasonable alternative, because they kind of all get to the same place anyway, don't they? No, No, not at all. That the message of Christianity is not that Jesus plus your good works gets you to heaven. Now, the message of Christianity is that Jesus plus nothing gives you everything. You know, from the very beginning, we humans have been trying to work our way back to God. We've been trying to impress God. We, we've been trying to, to prove to God that, that he should be impressed with us and accept us into his heaven. And honestly, that's what every other religious system in the world teaches. Do good. Work hard. Do the right rituals. Say the right prayers. Be the right kind of person from a secular perspective. And everything will turn out okay. But that's not the truth. The truth is that God made us to be in a relationship with him. And yet we have rebelled against him. We have have spurned that relationship. We've not accepted the relationship that he gave us on his terms. We've come to God and said, hey, I'd like to have a relationship with you, but I want it on my terms. And it just doesn't work. And, And for that rebellion, we've earned God's judgment. The good news of Christianity is that at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually did lead a life that impressed God. Because, see, the standard is way higher than any of us ever try to work for. The the, the standard is perfection. 
The standard is holiness. And that is what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came and lived an absolutely perfect life. An absolutely holy life. And then he took that life and he gave it for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ died not as a tragic victim of Rome, but he he died as as a sacrifice, as as a substitute. This was part of God's plan from the beginning, that the perfect son of God would, would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, that on the cross he would endure the punishment that we deserve, taking our sins on him, even though he didn't have any, and bearing our punishment for us. And to prove that God accepted that sacrifice, to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, three days after he died, God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. And that living Savior stands now and says to us, stop working. Stop working. You've been trying all your life to work your way to God. Stop. And instead, come to me. Trust that I've worked for you. Trust that I have died for you. Turn away from from your, your own way of working to God. And instead, allow me to bring you to God as you put your faith in me. Friends, this is the true message of the gospel. And it is there for all who repent, who turn away from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ who has worked for us. If if you're not a believer this morning, this is what we want to talk to you about. This is what we want you to hear when you come to to this church or, or, or really any Christian church. This is what we hope you will hear because this message brings life. I'd love to talk to you more about what it would look like for you to stop working and to put your trust in Jesus who worked for you instead. I'll be standing at the door in the back. Just just come find me. Or or talk to the person who came with you, who you came with. Or just start talking to God now. You you don't have to wait. You you don't have to do anything. You, You simply need to believe this message. And you can do that sitting right where you are at this very moment. Now, as a church, this is why we are not like a, like a university or, or, or a democratic society. This message and this reality that I've just been talking about, this is why we are much more like a hospital or a courtroom. You know, in a, in a university or, or in, the, in the public square, we're going to champion freedom of speech. People should be able to say what they want to say. Absolutely. We, we as Christians actually d- depend on that uh, to, to be able to, to preach our gospel message freely in our own culture. But, but you know, in, in the hospital, in the courtroom, it's not the freedom of speech that matters. It's the truth of the speech that matters. For, for the work of a hospital, for the work of a courtroom to really do its work, what matters is that what is said is true. 
so it is here at church, in our life together, in our community, corporately together. This is not a forum for any and every religious idea. There are places for that. Those are good places to have, and we should have them. But no, this is a forum for the proclamation of the truth. We want the gospel spoken truthfully here, clearly and accurately. And we want it spoken truthfully every single time because false teaching sends people to hell. Paul tells Titus here that false teachers need to be silenced. The word actually he uses is is they should be muzzled. Well, how do you do that? I I don't think Paul literally believed that that we should put some sort of physical muzzle on false teachers when they show up in, in church. Actually, he's, he's already told us how we are to silence false teaching. Back, back in verse 9, he's made it clear that silencing false teaching is done by elders encouraging the church with sound doctrine and refuting, that is arguing with and proving wrong, those who oppose it. In other words, false teaching is silenced by sound teaching, but by the promotion of sound teaching, by the multiplication of sound teaching. Now, how, how can we do that? How can we ensure that sound teaching is, is the dominant thing that we hear as, as a community here at Henson Baptist Church? Well, well it starts by, by understanding that, that this is our standard. The Bible is our standard. You're, you're not going to hear me preach messages on on, you know, movies or the, the latest sociological research or the, the latest psychological research. You're, you're not going to hear me preach messages that take as my touchstone of truth what, whatever is coming out of the latest field of science. Science is fantastic. God gave us science. But at the end of the day, our touchstone for truth is the Bible. And so we're going to make sure that's the case every time teaching is done here at this church. We also want to make sure that we're examining people who teach before they teach. So we want to examine the men who, who we're going to recognize as elders. We want to take time to, to hear them preach on a Sunday evening, to, to hear them teach in, 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 uh, in Sunday school classes or in small group Bible studies. We want to give you an opportunity to, to talk to them, to kick the tires a little bit and make sure that these are guys that every time they open their mouths, what's going to come out of it is truth. True biblical teaching. We want to do that before we give them access to, to, to the public at large. We want to make sure that we're holding our Sunday school teachers and our small group leaders accountable to our statement of faith. So, so the elders adopted a policy that, that basically if you're going to teach in any of these various contexts, you need to be a member of the church, which means you've got to agree wholeheartedly with, with what we believe to be true, that as, as it's summarized in our statement of faith. We want to consider very carefully what's sold on the bookstall. Many of you have come to me and have said, hey, my friend wrote a book, or I heard this, this great new book that's out. Can we get it on our bookstall? And at that point, I have to think of some kind nice, non-confrontational way of saying no. At least not until I've read it or the elders have read it and we're confident that that book is teaching the truth. 
I want to bring this level of scrutiny eventually to our library as well. We want to value good teaching here. We want to elevate sound teaching. Because without it, all we hear is false teaching. And false teaching destroys. So let me speak to fathers then for a minute. Because fathers, you're kind of the pastors of your own little church, your family. What sort of teaching is going on in your home? You know, these days, false teachers are not really likely to, to, to show up on your doorstep. They're, they're more likely to be present in your home on a video screen or, or through the earbuds that are in, they're in your kids' ears, Right? Our culture is constantly teaching a message about God. It goes something like this. God is probably out there, probably created everything, but basically distant. And and what that, that distant God wants of you is he wants you to be good and nice and fair. And, and, and what the goal of your life is, the goal of your life is to be happy, to, to be well-adjusted, to feel good about yourself, to, be, to feel comfortable in your own skin. And basically, when those kind of people die, when, when good people, happy people die, they go to heaven. That's what our culture is teaching our kids. There's been some massive research lately on, on what kids, what teenagers actually believe what teenagers in churches actually believe. And what the researchers have come up with is this phrase called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic. You should be good. You should be good. Therapeutic. You should be happy. You should be happy. Deism. Yeah, there's a God out there. But he's basically distant. And what he, he's kind of monitoring the situation, but not actively involved. And what he wants is for you to be good and for you to be happy. Because that's what our teenagers believe right across America. And they believe it because that is what is constantly coming at them. That is what is constantly being taught them. So dads, what do you do about it? How do you address the, the passive teaching that's constantly going on in your family because we are all wired families? Well, some of you are thinking, right, I just get rid of all screens and, you know, I get rid of all media and I get rid of all music and I get rid of, yeah, let me just stop you now. That is a fool's errand. It's not going to happen. You, you, you can't really do it. You can try, but you can't really do it. No, we, we're, we're not going to make sure that the false teaching our kids are getting is silence. We're not, we're not going to do that by building higher walls around our kids. No, what we need to be doing is we need to be countering that message with the sound teaching of the gospel. We need to make sure that the loudest voice in our family, the loudest uh, conversation 
in our household is a conversation about the gospel. The, the, the loudest voice is, is the sound of truth. As it's modeled, yes, in our lives. But also, dads, as we're speaking it. As we're reading scripture with our kids. As we're, as, as we're having family worship with them. But also just as we're driving around town, taking them to their sporting events. Or driving them to school. Or picking them up from play dates. We want to be constantly talking about the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that, you, that you're constantly giving theology lectures. It, it doesn't mean that you're, you're constantly using highly religious language. It, it doesn't mean that, that, that you're constantly giving, you know, a four-point gospel outline every time you're with your kids. It does mean that you're never talking to them without thinking about how this conversation relates to the truth and being transparent about that truth with them. If they don't hear you, Dad, speaking a better message, a true message, then the words that they do hear, that they hear constantly, that's coming at them 24-7 in this wired culture of ours, those words will ruin them. Words matter because words can destroy. But second, words matter because words can rescue. Words can rescue. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Paul tells Titus right there, rebuke them sharply. The question is, who's the them? Actually, the the them that Titus is to rebuke is not the false teachers. The the them, the people that, that Titus is to rebuke sharply are the Cretan Christians. He's to rebuke them so they won't pay attention to the false teachers with their myths and man-made rules. Now, it's not that false teachers are not to be rebuked. Actually, Paul's already said twice that we are to rebuke and, and silence false teachers. He said it in verse 9. He said it in verse 11. But now in, in, verse, uh, in, in verse 13, he is turning his attention from the teachers of false doctrine to the listeners of false doctrine. And he's telling Titus, rebuke them sharply, meaning you need to be rigorous in this. You, you, you need to even maybe be severe in this if they're listening to this bad stuff. Now, if that sounds like, you know, blaming and punishing the victim, after all, they're not doing the false teaching. They're just, you know, they're, they're just hearing it. One of the things that we need to understand is that throughout Scripture, we are never allowed to be passive about what we hear. We are never allowed to be passive about the teaching that we receive again and again and again. God not only holds the false teachers accountable, he actually holds us accountable for the words that we take in. Held accountable for the words we speak, for sure, but also held accountable for the words that we listen to, that that we take in and receive. So in his letter to the Galatians, uh, Paul doesn't rebuke the elders for tolerating false teaching in those churches. He rebukes the congregations. What are you doing listening to these guys, he says. The responsibility for what we listen to falls on us. Jesus himself said, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. The reason for this rebuke is clear. The stakes are high. Listening to false teaching leads to spiritual ruin. So Titus is basically to give them a verbal slap. 
He's, he's, he's to wake them up, bring them to their senses so that they will be sound in the faith. Now, that, that word sound, which has shown up now several times in this in this first chapter, we, we, we've heard about sound teaching. Now we're to be sound in the faith. It, it literally means healthy, to, to be healthy in the faith rather than dying like those who reject the truth. Now, Henson and, and especially the elders, because in some ways this sermon is, is part two to, to the sermon I preached last week that was really aimed at the elders. But, but I think this applies to, to the entire congregation as well. Are we willing to rebuke one another if we see someone being lured by false teaching? Are we willing to rebuke one another? Now, I'm not saying that rebuke should always be, you know, what you lead with. No, probably not. If, 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 if you feel like somebody, a friend of yours or, or elders, if we see a member of our congregation and they seem to be being taken in by false teaching, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you just, you know, start with a big re- rebuke. No, you're, you're, you're going to start with encouraging instruction. You're, you're going to start with questions. You're, you're going to start with engaging them. But if encouraging instruction doesn't work, Are we willing to take a sterner approach? You know, for many Christians, I think, if it doesn't feel nice, it must be wrong. Especially when it comes to interpersonal relationships. If it doesn't feel nice, it must be wrong. Conflict doesn't feel nice, therefore conflict must be wrong. Rebuking does not feel nice, therefore rebuking must be wrong. That's just silly thinking. I mean, I understand why, why it, it, it holds on to us, but, it, but it's silly thinking. I, I mean, think, think about other areas of your life, right? Disciplining my children does not feel nice. Chemotherapy does not feel nice. Strenuous exercise does not feel nice. None of those things feel nice in the moment. But in their own way, each one of those things leads to health. And their neglect leads to ruin and even death. So Henson, and especially the elders, do we love one one another enough to speak the truth to one another, to rebuke error, and to do so in a way that gets people's attention if necessary? Or are we content to love one another weakly? Content that people just think well of us. That people like to be around us. Even if that means letting them go on to their destruction. Now, I'm not encouraging a culture of hypercorrection. Right? Paul here is, is, is not saying that Titus is to go around rebuking and correcting the, 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 the Cretan Christians about every single little thing, right? He's talking about false teaching that leads to spiritual ruin. He's talking about unrepentant sin. He's, he's, he's not talking about, you know, the fact that, that some of you like the ducks and some of you like the beavers and you both think you're wrong. And yeah, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about serious matters. So wisdom is required here. But with that caveat that wisdom is required, are we willing to do it? Now, 
part of the answer to that question is going to be, are we the kind of people that are willing to receive a rebuke? Right? That, that, that's kind of the question that goes right along with this. Titus is to, to rebuke those who are listening to false teaching. And, and Paul is praying that those Cretan Christians will receive the rebuke and so be saved. Henson, are we the kind of people who are willing to be corrected? Proverbs 25, 12 says, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. You know, none of us like to be rebuked. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. But the ability to receive and accept correction may be the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. It may be the difference between being rescued from error and falling into its trap. And friends, it really only happens if we invite it before we need it. And if we cultivate the humility that is necessary to receive correction. It only happens if if we make it our practice here at Henson to live our, our spiritual lives together rather than privately. And in isolation, it it, it only happens if we are deliberate in promoting a culture in which godly encouragement and godly correction are considered normal, just a normal part of the Christian life together. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, who would rebuke you in this congregation? Who would rebuke you if you needed it? Who would correct you? If you really needed it, is there is there anybody who knows that they have your permission to step on your toes, to enter into your life and to say hard truths? Who would allow you to rebuke them? Look at it from the other direction. Are you this person in anybody else's life? Brothers and sisters, if you can't think of someone, then you need to take steps today to begin to change that. And honestly, it it needs to start, if it hasn't already, with elders and with fathers. You know, in in, in any culture, whether it's a a church culture or a family culture, authority is going to reside someplace. In the church, it resides with the elders uh, in in uh, in the family, it, it typically resides with the father. But do you know what happens when the authority figure is always correcting, but is never corrected? When the when the authority figure is always correcting, but is never correctable, won't even receive correction. What happens is that those who are on the receiving end stop listening. So, so brother elders and fellow fathers. It's got to start with us. We've got to be men who invite correction, not just men who give it out. Words can destroy and words can rescue. And the reason this is so important is that in the end, words are not enough. Words are not enough. That's the third point. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. 
Paul draws a contrast here between the pure and the corrupted. Apparently, part of what these mere talkers and deceivers were teaching was that that purity, holiness before God and therefore acceptance with God could be obtained through ritual and law. Do this, don't do that, and then you'll be clean and God will accept you. It's, it's a view of religion that is common right across the world. It's not just Judaism. It's, it's the idea that if we clean ourselves up enough on the outside, God will be pleased with us. But what Paul does here in verses 15 and 16 is he points out that actually, even though it seems that you know, it should work that way, it's just the opposite. To the morally pure, to those who are, who are clean on the inside, there are no unclean foods or or profane days. This was the point that Jesus was making in the passage that we read earlier in our passage. It's not what goes into a person, but what comes out of him that makes him unclean. Purify the heart, purify the inside, and the outward life will follow. But if the heart remains corrupted and unbelieving, then even your good works are impure. Because at the end of the day, it's the heart that matters. Paul says here that both the mind, that is our way of thinking, and our consciences, that is our moral sense of things, are corrupted. Therefore, he's not saying that, that unbelievers are, are completely, de, you know, outwardly depraved, as, as absolutely bad as they could be, that unbelievers never do any good thing. No, he's saying that, that morally... If you have not been cleansed on the inside by the spirit of God, then you are still controlled by sin and thus defiled before God. That's that's actually the language that he uses there. It gets uh, translated corruption. It's it's the language of defilement. That that idea of defilement, I think, is a hard concept to get our minds around in in a secular age like ours. The the idea of, of purity on the one hand and defilement on the other hand seems quaint. At best. But I think we can begin to approach this idea and understand what's going on if we think about marriage. Whether or not you're you're a Christian here this morning, I think you can appreciate the idea that that marriage, particularly the marriage bed, that, that relationship of sexual intimacy, is sacred. It it is to be protected. It's to be kept inviolate pure. When that relationship is not, when when there's the intrusion of someone else into the marriage relationship, what what, what happens there? The the marriage is defiled. Just like marriage, God made us to be in an inviolate relationship with him. And what's happened is sin and rebellion have intruded in and so have defiled the relationship, have violated and corrupted the very relationship in the same way that adultery violates a marriage and defiles it. Friends, this is why words are not enough. Paul sums it up in verse 16. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. Paul uses the word there that they claim to know God. He uses the word for what we did earlier. We confessed our faith when we when we read the Nicene Creed. 
he uses the language of confession or, or profession. And what he's saying is, it's not enough to say you know God. Just like it's not enough to say you love your spouse. Those words have got to be backed up by a heart that is pure toward God or else they are just words and your actions will prove it. Henson, we are not saved by our actions. We are not saved by our works. But, as Paul makes clear here, our transformed lives are the inevitable proof that our hearts have been purified, our hearts have been changed and made holy. There is, there is no such thing as a quote-unquote carnal Christian the way we tend to throw that term around. I know Paul uses it, but he uses it in a different way. He doesn't use it the way we throw it around. There are either those who profess to know God and prove it by their lives, or there are those who profess to know God but deny it by their lives. Paul could not be more clear about the latter category here. These are not people who are going to get into heaven by the skin of their teeth because they got their ticket. These are people who are detestable before God, who are disobedient and unfit for any good work, he says. In other words, people who are still in their sins, still under God's judgment. This is a hard teaching. It's hard for some of us to accept here this morning. It's hard because I'm not talking about strangers and I'm not talking about abstract theory. I'm talking about your adult children. I'm talking about your spouses. I'm talking about your nieces, your nephews, sometimes even your children. People who we love. People who we desperately want to be in heaven with us. People who made a profession of faith at one point in their lives and who we then personally assured that they were going to heaven and never doubt it. but who are now denying that profession, not with their lips, they still claim to be Christians, but they are denying that profession with their lives. Friends, that's who Paul is talking about here. So what do we do? Do we throw this away? Do we say this is too hard of a teaching? I can't accept it. No, friends. What we do is we change the way we explain the gospel. We stop selling people a false bill of goods that says that if you just say the right words and pray the right prayer, everything will be fine. Friends, that's magical thinking. That's not biblical thinking. Instead of that, we explain the gospel to people and we call people to follow Christ in repentance and in faith. We explain that we are saved by grace, not by works, but that saving grace will always transform the heart so that good works will always follow. Followers of Christ who don't follow aren't followers. We call people to to count the cost when we give the gospel to them. We call them to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ from the heart and not just with the lips. Now, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're one of these people who, who like me, actually, 
as a kid, made a profession of faith with my, with my lips. But it wouldn't be until I was an adult that I began to actually back that profession up with my life, with my faith, with my trust. So if that's you this morning, there is no reason to despair. No, no, there's simply call to today, repent and believe. Stop trusting in something you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Who cares? Today, repent and believe. Put your hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Trust him to purify you from the inside out and from this day on. Begin to follow him. That's what you do with this teaching. And for the rest of us, we don't give up. We don't give up on those family members and those friends who made a profession years ago, but now it is hard to even find hope at all in their life. We don't give up on them. We don't give up because we know that though their words of profession are not enough, our words, gospel words, words of correction, words of faith are able to rescue. As we speak the gospel, as we continue to speak the gospel, as we rebuke error, as we encourage others with the truth, God does his work through his word. That's what he does. He does his work in this world through his word. He melts hearts. He changes minds. He brings life where there was only death. He brings health where there was only sickness Because though our words are not enough, his words always are. And they are effective for salvation. And so, Henson, we do not give up. But we continue to speak sound words. The words of truth. Because they are the words of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that that you would give us discerning ears, that you would close our ears to, to false promises and false gospels. We pray that you would give us ears that are open to the truth, open to the promises of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us men and women who are bold to speak often and loudly the truth of the gospel. And we pray that you would be gracious to use those words to bring life where there was death and health where there was sickness. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.